in the 15th, uh, I'm sorry, in the 16th chapter of Matthew and in the 9th chapter of Luke, we find Jesus with the disciples by themselves for, and that, that was a little unique, Jesus praying. And uh, the disciples were talking about the huge crowds that had been following. In fact, uh, one of the most recent crowds, uh, Jesus miraculously fed over 5,000 with a couple fish and a few loaves of bread. And Jesus turned to the disciples and said, uh, who do the crowd say that I am? They said, uh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He took a moment and looked at him and said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? I've asked Missy and Kathy and Rick to uh, sing a song this morning to help us prepare to consider who we would say Jesus is. If you know the words, you can sing along with them. And uh, I hope we can, at some point in our lives, be like Peter and say, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Praise of your glory, for you are a 
your answer to the question, who do you say he is, will go a long way in determining the paths that your life will take and how effective you'll be as a witness and ambassador for our Lord and Savior. Mike and Trent uh, asked me to speak uh, today about stewardship. And I assume they asked me because of most of my adult life has been about helping people plan and purpose for some future goal. And as I consider that in my experience, <clears throat> their success is a lot like our success when it comes to dieting and working out. We have a lot of plans, but uh, our purpose is not strong enough and our discipline and our will often fail us. But you have a heart attack, and all of a sudden, things shift. The perspective is different. I use an example to illustrate perspective. Uh, assume you're driving home one day from work, or maybe it's from shopping, and as you get in your car and you're headed home, you see smoke out in the distance. It's in the direction of your house, but you don't think much of it. You continue to listen to record, uh, the radio. And as you start getting closer to your neighborhood, you realize... It very well may be in your neighborhood. And as you pull into your street where your house is, you see it's your neighbor's home across the street. A recent widow, her children have left, and she is standing there in the arms of your, your spouse, weeping as you pull into your driveway. And she's asking and begging, someone please go into the house and get my... I've got a box in the living room that's got the pictures of my kids and my husband, and... I'll pay anything if you go in. Well, the house is fully engulfed, so there's no one making a move. And she said, I'll give $10,000 if someone will go in. Well, no one's moving because the house is fully engaged. And then all of a sudden you hear a voice. And you realize that voice is the voice of your child. At that moment, there's no amount of money that's going to keep you out of that house. Your perspective has changed. Your attitude has changed. <clears throat> During World War II in Germany, there was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. Uh, he was a German psychologist, but he was also a Jew. And he was arrested and thrown into some of the worst Nazi prison camps and suffered some of the worst atrocities that you could face as a human being. He survived, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meeting. And in that, he made this point. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. With the loss of his future, he let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. Woe to him who, had saw, who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point of carrying on. He was soon lost. And he sums that up by saying, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. So if our purpose, if we see the vision of our life with a strong enough purpose, if we see Jesus with a strong enough passion, it will change our lives and change it forever. The world looks at Jesus as the greatest hoax of all time. Devoted Christians 
view it as the greatest hope for all mankind. There's a range of there. Where do we fall? Where do you fall? Let me tell you what God's perspective of stewardship in our life is. Because Mike and them, they just felt like that I, with my experience, could explain it. But my, my explanation doesn't matter. In fact, let me just make this point. I really don't care if you agree with me today. I almost hope I bother you enough by some of the things I'm going to lay out there that you'll say, you'll go and study to prove me wrong. Because it doesn't matter what I think for you. It's what you think and how you develop your perspective of God. But God's perspective of stewardship is very serious. I think this is one of the most important passages you'll read of in the Bible. In Luke 6, 10 through 12, he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now, when you hear, when, during my talk, when you hear riches, rewards, treasures, when God's given us something, ask yourself these questions. When, where, and why? We'll look at that. But when you consider true riches, what God considers true riches, it's you. He gave up the most important thing to him. For you, heaven, every time we mention it, it's about being in heaven. So remember that. In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the the talents. Now, the talents, we're talking about money that God gave out, but it was based on different levels of abilities. He gave one person five talents, another one two, and another one one. Well, we'll see how serious God is at when we realize that the one with five went out and doubled the money and brought back ten. The two doubled his and brought back four, but the one with the one buried it. Listen to his response to those. To the five and the two, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. When and where? Come and share in the master's happiness. The one who buried his money said, you wicked and lazy servant. He took his money away and threw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I would say that's pretty serious when you consider what he thinks and expects from us. Two things. One, God expects a return on his money, and he expects us to be devoted to producing it. When I, uh, one of the things that we have to look at in terms of our perspective, we have to decide where is our focus going to be. God, in his wisdom, put us here on this earth for a purpose. I don't know what your journey is, where you've been, and I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I'm going to share with you how, what, mine. My faith journey really didn't believe, it began until December the 17th, 1973. The following day, the New York Times wrote an article, Terrorist Attacked Rome Airport. I had just turned 21 years old two days before. My sister was 19, and we were at school, and my mom and dad lived in Saudi Arabia, for an oil co- worked for an oil company, and we were going there for Christmas break. 
We left from Little Rock, flew to New York, from New York to Rome, where we were going to spend a day sightseeing. Well, this was a big deal for two kids that had barely even been out of Louisiana. And it was a wonderful day. The next day, we get up and we were going to board the plane to fly on to Saudi Arabia. And as we were boarding, the pilot came on and said, there's some trouble in the terminal. I need everyone to lay on the floor of the plane, <clears throat> which we did. We could hear a little bit of commotion, but... Uh, it wasn't long before there was some, some explosions on the plane. Eight Palestinian terrorists came into the airport, opened up bags, took out submachine guns, and started shooting, killing two in the airport. A few of them ran over to our plane, entered, shot the people in first class, and dropped three incendiary bombs. And uh, I had just got up and moved to the back of the plane because the plane wasn't full. But uh, 30 people were killed, and one of them was my sister. At that moment, the faith that I had at that moment was pretty shallow. And obviously, I questioned that faith over the next few years. Why did it happen? I thought if I did right things, good things would happen. But the reality is, I didn't even have an understanding what faith was. I was living on my parents' faith. And I'm thankful for the training I got because it gave me a foundation to move, to move forward. But at that moment, I wasn't sure what I believed. And I realized after a little while, I had to make a decision. I could either live in anger and disbelief, or I could trust in a God that there was a purpose for what happened. And he would use it in his purpose and his will. Well, I went on a journey. It took two or three years for me to investigate. And I, because really I'm investigating, if we're honest, two, almost two unbelievable stories. That there's a God that's been here forever. He creates a world and ultimately sends, enters the world, and then he sends his son to save me. And the other option is we came from nothing. We just showed up and ended up like this. Well, science, fortunately, is giving more and more credence to the first. I checked out Jesus. He seemed to be who he said he was. And all of a sudden, I made the well, not all of a sudden, it was a process. I decided that I was going to put my faith in Jesus. The facts lined up better here than this. This didn't line up at all, and it offered me hope. But what I found out at that moment is Jesus' brother James, in his book, he made it very clear. What I had wasn't a faith. It was a belief. He basically lays it out. You take a belief and you put action to it that manifests that belief, then you have faith. My faith really started when we moved here over 30 years ago. And it became <clears throat> developed and started maturing into hope. I came to understand hope here. Bill Smith taught a class, an extent, uh, extended study on uh, heaven. And for the first time, I began to see where I, my destiny was. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven. And it's by my bed now, and it's something I read constantly because it's an extensive study of heaven and what we can expect. And it gives me so much confidence. It gives me, I'm, it's exciting. It, it was the first major paradigm change that I had as a Christian. And so, but I, it wasn't just that. I saw faith in action. I saw a businessman at this church, when it first started, give away most of his wealth to create a place where men and women could come together to seek after him and to further his kingdom. 
I saw men and women give up successful careers and all the benefits, financial benefits, comes to put themselves into service in the kingdom as ministers. I saw men and women coming out of wrecked and ruined lives that by accepting Christ, their lives changed dramatically. And I saw men and women that would give away days and nights for people they barely knew to help them to come to know Jesus. I watched men and women preach, I mean, I'm sorry, teach our children for almost over 20 years for no pay, no praise. Why do people do that? They have a hope and they have a faith. So I was learning. But the biggest thing that changed me was in this journey was seeing these people exhibit, uh, live out their faith in action. And when they did, I saw love. And once I started seeing love, it's kind of like going up a mountain. How many have climbed a mountain or driven up a mountain? The higher you get, the clearer your view, and the more majestic the view is. And that was how my life was developing as I began to see Jesus. I began to see God in a different way. And it's because of the men and women, the examples that go to church here, that made a difference. But the problem with our challenge with this growth is we live in two worlds. We're born into one, but our destiny, our home's another. And uh, as we look at uh, our plan there, we see that in Ecclesiastes, God tells us he put eternity in our heart. And in Philippians, it tells us our home is in heaven. So our hearts are created with a yearning for more. All of us want our lives to matter and have meaning. And I think that comes from the calling that we have for eternal lives. And we're pulled in, in both directions because we have responsibilities. We have, this is what we do. And yet, our hearts and our minds should be on, on heaven. And it's interesting that uh, in order for us to see that, God has given us a vision as to where he wants us to uh, point and where he wants us to head. And in... Uh, uh, Colossians 3.2, he tells us, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. But fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is, seen is, what is unseen is eternal. And when we realize the fact that we have responsibilities here, and yet our hearts are pulled to, to heaven. How do we handle that? I mean, we're in a situation where it's confusing. God gives us two playbooks. He gives us two plans. The plan that we have for um, this earth is we have a lot of scripture that helps us to, to look at that. And in your study guide, in your app, You'll see those listed, but I'll just run through them. On this earth, he called us to work hard, to be an example, to show people who we work for and why we do that, be honest and and people of integrity, to seek wisdom, not only from the Bible, but from each other, to spend less than you make, stay out of debt. We can all have had experience. If you're in debt, your mind is not totally focused on what God wants us to do. Save for the future. Don't be a burden on others. Keep up with what he's trusted you with. 
He says, mind your flocks. Because it's ours. He expects us to be responsible. Provide for your family. First Timothy makes it very uh, plain on that one. Leave an inheritance and legacy for your children and grandchildren. And be generous and give. As I consider the those the the plan that really works for the new earth where we're headed is manifested in giving and God gave us an investment plan for heaven he tells us in second peter 3:11 you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of god and speed its coming that day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and elements will melt in the heat but in keeping with his promise we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. And here's his investment plan. And again, remember when and where. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards, when and where, those who earnestly seek him. In Luke 6:38, give And it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, when and where. Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. And you'll inherit eternal life, when and where. Revelations 22:12. Jesus tells us, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. So it's pretty evident that God, Jesus, they're not against us seeking, investing, creating wealth. In fact, they encourage it. But the question is, when and where? Matthew 6:19 gives us the answer. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy or where the thieves can break in and steal. But store up treasures in heaven where your treasures is, there will be your heart. How many of us would disagree with that? All I have to know about someone is where they spend their time and where they spend their money. And I know where their heart is. You know, giving is is a challenging, challenging thing. It confronts our faith, and it uh, challenges everything that makes sense in us, particularly when you throw in it's more blessed to give than receive. And so we struggle with that. Now, the whole rewards and treasures and riches leads to a false theology called prosperity theology. And a lot of preachers will use that to get people to give more. And I have two concerns with that. One, you're doing it for the wrong world. The focus is off. And the second is the people that were closest to Jesus, the apostles, who gave the most, their very lives, did not receive any material blessings on this earth. But I do believe that God does bless us with riches and gives us opportunity to be prosperous on this earth. And then you have a question. You know the when, the where. What about the why? Well, Second Corinthians 9.11 says... You will be made rich in every way. Why? So that you can be generous on every occasion. 
And through us, your generosity result in thanksgiving to God. Bill Smith and I taught a class on the Law of Rewards, another Randy Alcorn book that talks about this giving and your rewards in heaven. Now, I would, I would encourage you, if you're going to read that book, read heaven first. You have to understand what that works. And again, I'm not, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, that's, that's fine. I want you to study it. But Bill, who taught me everything, I brought him that book and I said, Bill, I think I found the answer to some of the confusion I have on some of these scriptures. And he read it and he said, I never thought of it like that. And help me teach his class. At the end of every class, he would put this slide up. It is a wise person who gives what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. Again, it's perspective. And I would ask you, what is, what are you, what are you time period are you looking at? Are you looking to save and be okay for the next 50 years? Are you looking at the next 50 million years? Once you start looking at things through the lens of eternity, it changes everything. It changes everything in your life. But you can't talk about giving without looking at the what, when, where, and why. The what is something that I really wasn't taught a lot about. Now, let me make this point. There's three things that I did not get a lot of instruction on growing up. Now, as a disclaimer, growing up, I was interested in three things primarily. If it wasn't baseball, hunting, or fishing, I probably wasn't paying good attention. So for all the ministers that spoke to my life when I was growing up, I give them a little bit of a pass. But there was three things that I really didn't know much about, and there wasn't much talking about. One was heaven. One was the Holy Spirit. Two. And three was giving. And when you think about it, what were we missing? I was giving up hope, my helper in this life. And my happiness. So I hopefully, and I learned it here. And so I'm very grateful for those that uh, taught us that. But there's two views of the tithe. And the tithe just simply is the tenth part. And in the Old Testament, it, they were required to give a tenth. And it had to be the best. It had to be the best they had, the first fruits. Well, there's one group now that say, well, that's Old Testament, that's legalism. And uh, it's not really taught in the New Testament. The second group says, no, but Jesus had plenty of opportunity to negate it and and rescind it. And uh, it is a great example. It's a good place for us to focus. It does make a statement of whose money we really think it is. Again, another perspective issue. So I would say I agree with both. The... um, In fact, a lot of people say, well, what did the first century church do? Well, we have some historians that comment on that. One of them is Arrhenius, who lived in the mid-hundreds, so right after uh, Christ passed away, not long. The Jews, and this is what he said, the Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. Christians who had liberty assigned all their possessions to the Lord, bestowing freely, not the lesser portion, since they had the hope of greater things. Augustine in the late 300s, early 400s said this, tithes are required as a matter of debt. And he who has been unwilling to give them has been guilty of robbery. Whoever, therefore, desires to secure a reward for himself, let them render tithes, and out of the nine parts, let them give alms. 
In other words, the first contributions to your church and then the, the other contributions would be over top of that. And then Jerome, same period, said, If anyone shall not pay tithes, he is convicted of defrauding and supplanting God. But what does the New Testament say about giving? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says this, Remember this, whoever spares, uh, sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Everyone should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The first is proportionate, and that's just a repeated thing. What we give is we'll get back. I think it'll be in heaven, and that's, uh, uh, I think a lot of Scripture will verify that. Consideration. This is a personal, as one of the elders here, When you sit down, well, first of all, I would ask you to sit down and prayerfully consider what you're going to give. Time, effort, and particularly what we're talking about today is your your contribution. I want you to pray over it. I want you to ask God's blessings on that, that it will be multiplied just like he multiplied the fishes and the bread. And we'll we'll come back around and, and look at what that looks like. And then not out of compulsion. I do believe, I do believe that God wants us to come from the heart. You know, one of the things that is interesting that Jesus, of course, he was with the Pharisees in Luke 11. And he said, keep doing what you're doing. Keep giving your tent. But have hope. I mean, give love and justice. So he added to it. When it comes to murder, do not murder. He said, don't even be angry. When he talked about adultery, it's not the adultery, he said, don't even think on a person lustfully. When he talks about love, he raised it again. He raised the bar to don't, don't even be angry at your, at, at your enemy. Love your enemy. So every time I look at that, and then in Romans 11, it said, The commandments say, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not cover, I mean, covet. And whatever other commandment there may be, it's summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. The heart matters to Jesus. When and where should we give? 1 Corinthians 16, 11, 1 and 2 says, Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatians churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Now let me make an important part, uh, comment here. I want you to understand this. How much, what percentage you give does not determine salvation. That contribution was made on the cross by Jesus. His blood covers that contribution. If you follow him, you've committed to him, you're in heaven. I believe what you do with your life will affect heaven, your existence in heaven. That's a whole other subject. Bill and I tried to address that over ten weeks. So, But if it causes you to think and question that, great. I want you to get into the book and study it. My personal decision is I'm going to give. My main contribution, tithe or not, is going to be here to support this group and further its works here. I am going to give additional. World Radio, OCS, whatever it is that you have a passion for, it will be above and beyond that. That's my decision. Study it and make your decision. Because giving is, like I said, it is a real challenge. It threatens our security It confronts our 
our faith, and it does argue against all logic. But isn't that what love is? How many of you have a hard time giving to the people you love the most? If you want a picture of that, probably go to any grandmother in this room and, and ask them what they think about giving to their grandchildren. So it really is back to that first question. Who do you say I am? Until you know God and Jesus in a way that it's intimate and personal. And how do you get there? You spend time. How do you do with any relationship? You spend time to create that relationship. So as I look at that, where am I going from here? What is my future going to be? I want to grow in my relationship with God. And I want to do that hand in hand with men and women that have decided to take a stand for his kingdom. Have put on the armor of God and is ready to fight the fight. For me now, at 64, I'm still fighting for me, but I'm fighting for my children and I'm fighting for my grandchildren. Against a culture that wants to minimize God, minimize Jesus. And there are men and women all over this country. This community here, I've gone... I'm in fellowship with here, the state, and the nation that have a common foe, and they love the Lord their God with all their heart. And I, they will stand with me, and I will stand with them, and they may be going to churches with other names on them. I love my heritage, my, the origin of my heritage is in the Church of Christ. Men and women from different faiths came together and said, I'm putting away all the things to keep me from Jesus. And I want to know him and I want to worship him the way he told us to worship. They had a couple banners, I mean, a couple slogans. One was, in essentials, things of first importance, we're in unity. Things that are not of first importance, that are not essential, we're at liberty. But we're in everything, we're in love with each other. They also flew a banner that said, we're, not, uh, we're Christians only, not the only Christians. I like that, I believe that, I love that. But ultimately, the question, who do you say I am, deserves a decision. A decision that we're going to make and we're going to stand, we're going to fight for him. I want to stand here with you. And I want to do that because, or with people that say that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, like Peter did. The righteous one. And that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That we're all created in the image of God, and that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that we all have access and forgiveness and salvation found in the blood of Jesus. And I want to follow Jesus when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Jesus. And I want to work with a group of men and women that have a history and a heart for the lost. And their faith is evidenced in their behavior. And guess what? I don't have to go very far. Next year, we're going to be celebrating 60 years here at WFR. And during that period, we've had men and women stand up and lead us with faith and courage and confidence that God will is in control and will guide us. To illustrate this, I'm going to just give you an idea of what this group of believers have done over the last 60 years. Fifty years ago, Camp Chioka was established, where over 25,000 children had...
have been able to experience what researchers say is probably the most fundamentally effective way to tell them about Jesus. We had a preacher school here that trained over 700 men and women that served in 50 states and 40 nations. World Radio was established to get the word out of the gospel through missionaries all over the world. And currently they have over 200 speakers in over 100 nations that are hearing about Jesus. And millions have responded because of it. Howard Publishing was started and produced the songbook for thousands of churches and produced books that helped Christians, hundreds and hundreds of Christians all around the world. Our relief ministries have delivered over $31 million worth of relief to people hurting around the world. Amen, American military evangelizing nations developed key people in every military base around the world. We care has, in its 40-year history, has reached over 20,000 that have responded to the good news of Jesus. Heartfelt Ministries is encouraging thousands of women in hundreds of locations around the world to teach them about older women ministering, training, and loving younger women. The National Director for Celebrate Recovery and the National Training Director were trained here, loved here, and began their recovery minister here, and now they work to serve over 30,000 churches and over 3 million men and women can come to know Jesus through the healing of their hurts and hang-ups. There are hundreds of families that are provided food twice a month in our very foyers by our, relief, our pantry relief uh, workers. Divorce care, grief care have been provided here. Our Celebrate Recovery Here work has hundreds of men and women every week that come here to find answers to their struggles and yet turn around and share it with others about the hope that they found in Jesus. We have homes that have been opened up for people that are trying to get their feet on the ground that need safety and love and the message of Jesus. Even a store has been opened that provides a safe place for them to work. We have a marriage ministry that's been here since we began, and now it's, it's evidenced in our re-engage and even premarital counseling through Merge. We have a counseling center that helps hundreds every week to heal. Our prison ministry, CR Inside, is currently conducting safe, uh, step studies in 21 prisons in our state and has worship services in seven. Two of them are in Angola, the largest prison in the United States. Where over a thousand men and women that have been incarcerated have been freed from this earth because they come to understand who Jesus was. And on top of that, God used one of our families here to share the greatest command of loving him with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our neighbors as ourselves through TV. And they share the good news of Jesus with thousands every month by them going out and speaking at seminars and events every week. But this doesn't even cover the many men and women that travel on mission trips domestically and foreign every year or the hundreds of men and women that serve as greeters, work in service capacities of communion, security, coffee fellowship, cleaning, mowing, and praying every week. And they do it for not, no praise and no finances. Because they love the Lord and they see him as their Lord and Savior. And God is keeping track and preparing rewards for them. But even though this is incredible 
that that could happen. It happened in West Monroe, Louisiana, one of the poorest regions in the world. I almost feel like we're like Nazareth, where some people would say, could anything good come from that place? <laughs> and he, but that's, that's incredible. But what's even more Have you all looked at each other lately? This is a one of everything. And, and I would say everything except extremely wealth. We have never had a lot of money. Take a look at our worn-out building. It's because we use it. Now, I'd like to try it with money once, but I do believe that God loves our humility and the fact that we claim we know who He is and His strength will be seen in our weakness. One answer of how it gets done, it's God's favor. Because we seek Him, we trust His promises, and we do it humbly. You know, Carl Allison was one of our founders here, and he had a saying that said a lot, and he says, the best is yet to come. And I believe that. But it, I also believe it will not happen unless we really come to know who Jesus is and allows us and motivates us to give more and more and more of our time and efforts and, yes, even our money. The, um, I'm looking at the clock, and, I'm, and there's two things when I look at it. There's one, I don't want to abuse your time. And the second is, my clock is ticking. I don't know how many of you watch 24, but uh, it's funny. Uh, we know Jack Bauer and now the new Eric Carter is going to make it because they have more, more shows to show. But when that countdown clock comes on, my heart speeds up every time. And that's kind of the way I'm looking at where I'm headed. My clock is ticking. And it's interesting because at one time when I thought about the end of life, I'd have to say there was a little bit of fear and a little bit of uh, sadness. But as I've calling up that mountain and gotten better view of who God and Jesus is, I'm almost like a child before Christmas. I'm really looking forward to it. But there's more I want to know. I want to know this incredibly powerful God we have. A God that created a universe that's 91 billion miles wide. And the reason they don't say it's wider is because that's as far as we can see. Now, 91 billion miles to get across would be one thing. But you have to travel at 671 million miles an hour to get across in 91 billion years. That is an awesome God. I want to know the God that in Revelation 5 says there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That's 100 million angels circled around His throne saying, Worthy is the Lamb, holy, holy, holy. I want to know that God. But that's not even the biggest reason. We have a God that's that powerful and that majestic. And he made the decision to give up his most precious thing to send him here because he couldn't stand the thought of being in heaven forever without me and without you. That's the God we have. And to think of that, that God, when, particularly when he saw us, he knows us and he still did it. I want to worship that God and be a part of that. And I want to do it with you. My decision is to trust, 
trust God and to work and make a stand with you. One thing I don't want to do is put things in my life that's going to keep me from seeing him as who he really is. I don't want my selfishness. I don't want my pride. I don't want my arrogance. I don't want to get hung up on things that are not of first importance and argue over anything that we argue about and take up time if it's a disputable matter. I want, to, I want everything out of my way so I can see God better. And I can do it because of your example, and I appreciate it. So if there's things in your life that are getting in the way from you being having that relationship with God, let's get rid of it. Let's join together and make a stand. And if you have not ever had the opportunity or made the decision to allow God to be your Lord and Savior, we'd love for you to come and, and join us today with that. Thank you.